like an angel Walk like an angel Talk like an angel But I got wise You're the devil in disguise Oh yes you are Devil in disguise Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Meryl Streep in the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. I'm one of your hosts, Zachary Scott Johnson. On today's episode, we talk about Meryl's 1989 comedy, She-Devil. I was lucky enough to have a conversation with the director of that film, Susan Seidelman, and I want to take a minute and thank Susan for her time. It was very kind of her, and really there was no incentive for her to do this other than kindness. Um, uh, I asked her at one point if there was anything of hers that I could plug, and uh, she said no, but I would like to plug some of her work anyway. I think she's a really interesting filmmaker, and she's done some wonderful stuff. So um, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a fan of Marilyn, probably already know She-Devil. If not, I would encourage you to check that one out. She's also uh, the director of another pretty iconic 80s movie called Desperately Seeking Susan with Madonna. She's she's directed a lot of things that are that are really interesting. Her most recent movie is a film called The Hot Flashes, which I encourage you to check out. She also directed the pilot of uh, Sex in the City, as well as many other episodes. We are ready to start the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this morning, Miss Meryl McNally? I'm excellent. How are you, Zach? I'm good. It's another Monday, the day after Oscar's day. Yes. We were going to talk yesterday, but then we realized, well, you were you were a little busy, but then we also realized it might be better if we just waited until after the Oscars anyway, in case something crazy happened, and some yeah. crazy things happened, although not really, well, one of them kind of involved yeah. Meryl, in a way, um, yeah. standing ovation for her, um, so I didn't get to see the Oscars, I watched just a couple clips, including the one you texted me about, <laughs> Um, so what were your <laughs> overall impressions of the Oscars since I didn't get to watch them? Um, I think I think the Oscars continued its trend of being slightly off kilter. <laughs> yeah. They're still they're still tr- struggling to find um find a find a tone, find a way to make the show enjoyable for um a broader, you know, national television audience. Sure. Um Jimmy Kimmel is is very very funny and I think he did a good job. There were a couple segments that kind of missed the missed the mark, I think. Like and what? Then, which of ones course, were you not a fan of? So they did a they did a segment where um they brought in a tour bus of of tourists and mm-hmm. supposedly told them that they were coming to see an Oscar dresses costume exhibit. Oh sure. And they brought they brought the tourists into into the theater where all the celebrities were. And it was meant to be a cool surprise, but I think what it went on too long and then what ended up happening was it sort of had this oh, we're bringing the common folk <laughs> in mm, to yeah. like meet all these wonderful celebrities that they love and idolize so much and like a couple of the tourists had um their cell phones out and like on selfie sticks permanently sure. throughout the entire exchange. And it sort of made, I think it sort of made 
fun of those people. Sure. Was this and, the Jerry from Chicago thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I heard that. It, it I did. Yeah. It just yeah missed the mark for me. Okay. I was like, I this is sort that. of insulting to those people. Oh. Sure. Yeah, um, I could see that. But yeah, other other than that, I think um, I think it was okay. You know, Justin Timberlake opened the show. You know, his song mm-hmm. is catchy, but it went on way too long, and Jimmy Kimmel was not really a part of the opening number. Sure. And not that he should be, not that he has to be, but it just went on way too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched his and opening monologue, but I didn't see Timberlake's number yet. Um, yeah. So it got good reviews I enjoyed his on opening social monologue. media. Yeah, I did too. I did too. Yeah, I, thought I enjoyed it, it Jimmy a, Kimmel. I kind of do too. I, You know, I never really had thought much about Jimmy Kimmel. Like, I, I didn't like him or dislike him. I didn't really have an opinion on him. But lately, he's been kind of killing it. I think he's been doing really interesting things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and um you, you know the other thing is that there were no there were no upsets and um oh, besides besides the crazy ending but right. so it was sort of you know like like any like any competition you watch on TV you like a little bit of drama and um everyone who was expected to win really did win except right. for the final moment so it it um you know it it wasn't super dynamic. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that big ending. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure anybody listening, if they're listening to a Meryl Streep podcast, they're probably aware of what happened at the Oscars yesterday, but on the off chance somebody is listening to this 40 years from now and is, is kind of trying to figure out what which particular ceremony we're referencing or something like that, um, this is the year where Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway reunited to present the final Best Picture which La La Land, I think, was pretty heavily expected to take, right? Yeah. Would you agree? Um, yep. Oh, although yeah. I called that one. I, in our last episode, I, I called two spoilers. I said, I think Denzel might pull it out in Best After, and he didn't, which is too bad. Yeah. Although I saw Manchester by the Sea recently, Did and you? it is good. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a sec. I, I don't want to get, like, okay. three times removed. Right, right, sidetracked. <laughs> um, so, anyway... Uh, but the other one that I called was, I said, I think it's entirely possible that Damien Chazelle or whatever his name is will win Best Director, but Moonlight will win Best yeah. Picture. And I was right about that, although it didn't seem like I was going to be right about that at first, because <laughs> Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway came out. Now, will you tell it? Because you actually watched it. I missed sure. the first part. So. so they came out, and Warren Beatty, you know, announced the nominees, and then he opened the card, and he looked at it, and he paused, and he said, and the best picture winner is, and then he, it, it, it seemed like he was trying to build suspense, because he wasn't reading the name, and so he kind of looked around, and he's like, it is, and Faye Dunaway thought that's what he was doing as well, and so she was like, oh, you're awful, and she grabs the card, and she reads, the best picture winner is La La Land. So Lala Land gets up on stage. The producers get up, get up on stage. They're holding their Oscars. They're giving their thank you speeches. I mean, from the heart, heartfelt thank you speeches. I think you're on producer number three when you start to see this this sort of um, um, disruption going on in the crowd behind them on stage. You know, everybody gets up on stage that was involved with the film. And you see Emma Stone somebody saying something to Emma Stone and she goes, 
what? Are you kidding me? She has this look on her face like, what? And um, um, the one of the producers of La La Land says, actually, um, um, Moonlight is the best picture winner. And everyone thinks it's a joke. He's like, I'm not joking. And he picks up the card and he holds it out. He's like, Moonlight is the best picture winner. And they were incredibly gracious. They said, you know, we couldn't be happier to hand this over to them. And they were really, really lovely about it. It was so unfortunate, though, because they were so excited, you know, that La La Land had had won. And they were giving heartfelt speeches. And then, you know, by the time Moonlight realized they had won, they, they, I mean, they didn't even have an opportunity to really say thank you. There There was no screen time for them. And it, it was just unfortunate for everybody involved, but it was insane. Wow. I mean, La La Land won, and I was sitting complaining to, to my mom and dad about how Moonlight should have taken Best Picture. And then my dad's <laughs> like, Meryl, 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 look, look, look. And I'm like, what? He's like, look, what's happening? Wow. <laughs> the um, Online, the clip that I... It didn't show any of the beginning. It just showed the moment where La La Land was told. So if you don't watch it in the context of, of the story that you told, it looked to me like La La Land had like just hit the stage. I didn't realize that they had like actually started their speeches. That adds oh, a whole they had. element to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the I, I can't recall his name. It kind of the main producer with sort of the shaved head. Oh yeah, he gave his entire speech. A second guy got up, and a third guy got up, and he said, "Well, I want you know, I want to say thank you, but we didn't win." Uh-huh. <laughs> and everyone was just so confused. And and you know, it's funny because the internet is largely sort of pointing the finger at Warren Beatty, but he didn't right. read anything off the card. It was straight right. on away. And, and he, and he got it. up at the mic. He was right. like, "Listen, I." And what's strange is that Emma Stone, I guess, at the press, you know, at the press conference afterwards, said she had her best actress card the whole time. Right. So there must be two, so, which I think they've said something about, but I don't, I didn't read it. There must have been. I haven't read about it extensively this morning, but I'm sure there, there was a misprint, and I, I feel terrible for everybody involved. Yeah, it is one of those situations where, like, there's no winners in this situation, and Warren Beatty. Um, I don't think she'd be the one blamed for anything. It's kind of funny that no. he, that he's a scapegoat because really, it's not even Faye Dunaway's fault for reading it. It's it's whoever handed them that card, right? I mean, really, right. it's whoever whoever handed them the card with the wrong thing on it. Um, oh yeah. But yeah, I would especially say if Warren Beatty was taking that much time, he he must have clearly known something was wrong, you know, and and tried to like. Boy, that's got to be an awkward moment. Like, you have to think. Also, this kind of puts to bed the rest. You remember that year when Marissa Tomei won and everybody thought Jack Palance had won, had said the wrong name? Do you remember that? She won yes. the wrong actress years ago, and that was the rumor was that he had just yeah, won the wrong name. Yeah, for my cousin Vinny. Yeah, because he's, he, you know, he was old and whatever. <laughs> this kind of puts to yeah. bed the idea, although that was... 20 years ago, too, but that, this kind of puts to bed the idea that that can happen because hypothetically somebody would interrupt the show. Somebody like, will come Sorry. out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually correct it. So, Mercer Tomei should probably feel a lot better today that she actually did win that award. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah, boy, that's, that's rough. That's pretty um, shocking. It, it looks 
I, I saw the rest of the, the clip towards the end. And, and even, like, even poor in a, in a way, like, Jimmy Kimmel in a way, too, because, you like, how do you recover from that? Like, say the goodbye of the night, and that eclipses everything that he did. And, you know, he just, he tried to, like, on the spot say a couple of things, like, Warren, stop trying to be funny or whatever, you know, like trying to make just yeah. awkward, horrifying moments something other than awkward and horrifying. And you know um, what? And to his credit, I think he did help with that. Yeah. You know, so did Jimmy Kimmel. Because Jimmy Kimmel got up there and he was like, I mean, he made a joke about Steve Harvey. Right. He was like, Warren, you pulled a Steve Harvey. And then at the final, he said, you know, somebody had to guarantee that I would screw up the Oscar. <laughs> and, you know, he made he made light of it and, and did the best he could under the circumstances. It was right. pretty shocking. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you can't make that stuff up. You just can't. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing, the, the this is so funny, and this is probably me being hypersensitive to this kind of thing, but unrelated to the best picture um, situation, um, Leonardo DiCaprio came out to announce best actress. Sure. And the um, the scripted intro for him really bothered me. He gets well, up there well. and he says. <clears throat> He says, um, you know, it's something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, um, you know, all of these actresses are so talented that when you watch them in their nominated roles this year, you no longer see the actress. You see a rape victim, uh, a struggling actress, and he reduces all of the nominees down to, like, a label that characterizes or describes their character. And I thought about that for a second. I was like, you would never, ever, ever do that in the men's category. I mean, yeah. imagine it. Imagine Brie Larson coming out and saying, these actors are so talented. They get up on screen and you no longer see the <laughs> actor. You see a down-and-out janitor, a struggling jazz musician. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would never happen. <laughs> and it really bothered me, um, you know, just from a writer's standpoint. It, it was, you know, it's that sort of, it's that sort of insidious subconscious um, uh, uh, sexism or misogyny going on that we don't even realize we all engage in. Yep. Yep. It's it's because just Elizabeth ways. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, because Isabel Huppert's part was more, she was more than just a rape victim in that film. Right. And right. reducing it to that was sort of insulting. Yeah. He, um, he's, a, he's a very good actor. I was going to say a great actor. I don't know if he's a great actor, but he's a very good actor, I think. And, um, but he doesn't seem to be the most, for as, for as well-spoken and um, I think he's very good on things like the environment. But, you know, his, like, yes. you know, rotating door of, you know, 20-year-old blonde models that he dates. I'm thinking he may not be the most, you know. No, and I doubt he wrote it. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it was too, given but... to him. Right. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think it was probably made doubly insulting by the fact that it was coming out of his mouth for that very reason. Right. <laughs> you know. Uh Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and I was really annoyed with Casey Affleck. You know, he was the he was the expected winner. He yep. knew he was likely to win, and he didn't even bother preparing a thank you speech. Oh, didn't he? His is the one out he, of the four acting really winners. His I got to watch online, you know, on YouTube. They last night they had up the uh, you know Mahershala Ali and Viola Davis's speech, and then this morning uh, Emma Stone's was up. But his as of while we're recording this, his is not up. His speech is not up. That's his is the only useless. one I haven't been able to see. <laughs> Okay. I mean, he, he makes. I mean, he he does. He makes a comment about how Denzel Washington uh, um, was one of his first, you know, acting teachers, and he was so excited to get him to meet meet him for the first time that night. <clears throat> Which obviously, I'm looking. Yeah, like he's saying, watching his films. Watching Denzel's films, you know, taught this, him to act is essentially what he was saying. Right. But yeah, he no, had never no. met him before. How is that possible? They've been like at the Golden Globes and they've been competing right. against each other at all these things. How is it possible that they never met? Well, I thought that was really strange too. <laughs> and also, it felt, and obviously, I am very, I'm sort of jaded towards Casey Affleck, but I feel like, I feel yeah. like he was trying to play that humble card. Uh, sure. You know, I don't I don't know what it was. And then he was like, you know, I wish I had something really moving and powerful to say, but um um I don't, you know, um thank you all. I mean I'm just kind of I'm sort of floored. Um yeah, thanks. Bye. Well, you know, okay. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that I saw Manchester by the Sea, and I also saw Hacksaw Ridge since we last talked to. And um, oh yes, and Manchester by the Sea. I, I, I have to say, I liked the movie. I didn't dislike it by any means. It is a sad, sad movie. Holy cow! That's um, what I have heard. Yes, it is a like, yeah. It's 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 rough. It's pretty brutal. But his performance really did not affect me in any way. I mean, I'm not, he was not bad. And, you know, his, I could see him being nominated. But I yeah. honestly, his performance was just kind of what you are describing to me. He felt very removed from the character. And I think it was he can justify it by, you know, saying it's a choice because his character is the one that basically all this horrible stuff happens to. Um, and so, like, it's it's, Maybe the argument that, like, you know, he was just completely removing himself emotionally, but, like, it's kind of that same thing that I was saying earlier when we did our, you know, this actor wasn't nominated, when we talked about Tom Hanks and Sully, and I mentioned that, like, I think the reason that he wasn't nominated was there was no, like, big moment for him. You know, there was, like, no moment where he had a breakdown and, like, everything kind of... and, And actually, in a lot of ways... Casey Affleck didn't in this movie either. It was kind of it wasn't a bad performance, but it felt like a one note performance in that it kind of went all the way through the same thing. And um, I found myself thinking the whole time, okay, so it's between Denzel and Casey Affleck. So I, I thought to myself, now if Denzel Washington was playing this role in, in Manchester by the Sea, how would uh-huh. that compare? And I found myself thinking Denzel would have blown this. Like, he would have just taken this role. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I have nothing against Casey Affleck, although I kind of do. I mean, like, you know, there's some there's some stuff that's been said about him. It's always that fine line of, like, you can't 
you know, like, uh, you yeah. always have to, like, there has to be some justification for it. There has to be, you know, if somebody could say something horrible about anybody just because they're famous. I get that. But, like, it's, it sure seems like enough people came forward. Um, and, yeah. You know, we, Bill think... Cosby's career is over because enough people came forward. Casey Affleck's winning Oscars and enough people came forward. You know, oh, like, yeah, what's the, the Parker's film tanked because... Right. You know, people came forward. You know, for me, listen, I'm coming from a spot of really enjoying Casey Affleck's performances and choices in films. Really? I okay. I loved him and I loved him in the assassination of Jesse James. Mm-hmm. I loved him in Gone Baby Gone. I loved him yeah. in, in Ain't Those Body Saints. Um uh I I loved that film. I um you know, he got a standing O when he won, and it it just sort of perplexes me. Um, you know, he pulled the ultimate prank on Hollywood that was over a year in the making with Joaquin Phoenix with the I'm Not Here business. Right, which that's and the other reason came, I have a thing with him. I hated that yeah, movie. That movie made me his, so angry. Yeah, and they did it on purpose as this joke, and then come, you know, come to find out, um, it was during that process that that you know the alleged sexual harassment happened. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've read the allegations, and they're 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 difficult to make up. Mm-hmm. You know, the the way they're the the way these women both came forward. It's not so much – it drives me bonkers that he potentially did that and that right. nobody's really talking about it. But what bothers me more is the way that he's dealt with it publicly. How he, he dismissed it, it in, his golden, in his golden – well, first of all, he hasn't said a word. And then, like, in his Golden Globe speech, he referred to it as outside noise. Oh, and is very dismissive of the entire thing instead of taking some responsibility for his own actions, which is, I think, all people want. I mean, right. I think, I truly think Nate Parker could have taken an approach with what happened with Birth of a Nation and that, that, that may have, have spared him to some degree. He didn't mm-hmm. take that route. Um, and I don't know if that's true. I mean, I could be totally making that up. I just feel, I, I just feel like... Well, we'll never know, right? We'll never know. We'll never know. And I just... I, I just Have don't understand why people weren't talking about it more. I haven't. Right. I did. I, and I it was. I, I rented it from the library. I knew this was... I have mentioned on a few episodes that I have a crazy DVD collection. But I, I rented this one because I knew... I suspected... Well, first of all, I didn't really want to support this movie because of... Because right. of the circumstances right. behind it. Uh, the other thing was that I knew it was the kind of movie I was not likely to want to watch more than once. Um, it, mm-hmm. it's that, those kinds of brutal slavery stories are, are very difficult. Um, I think they're important yeah. to watch. Like, I think they should be made. I'm just saying, for me personally, I have a very difficult time watching those movies. I, and it, it actually is not just that. I had a hard time with Hackstar Ridge, too. It's just brutal violence. I, I, I have a really yeah. hard time with it. And so... Uh, Birth of a Nation was a really difficult 
movie. I did think it was really well made. I thought it was a very well made movie, but in the same way that I was talking about Manchester by the Sea not affecting me greatly, Birth of a Nation didn't um didn't hit all the notes that I kinda thought maybe it would too yeah. for as big a movie as that was, you know, supposed to be. Because again, before the controversy that was going to be the movie this year. You know, that was the one that oh, yeah. may have won things. And um, it, it was because of the controversy that that movie just kind of disappeared. But, um, yeah, so for whatever that's worth, I didn't mean to, to cut you off there. What were you No, saying? no, no, um, not at all. Um, you didn't You didn't cut me off at all. I sort of come to come to a natural oh, end of okay. my thoughts on that. I just, I... Um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, La La Land was very similar for me as well in that um, parts of it moved me, but to a large extent, it somehow missed. It didn't quite tap into, I don't know, my my emotional, my emotional, you know, bank account. I just mm-hmm. I was like, Meh. and. Um, I've got to say, Moonlight really did. Oh, it did. You saw Moonlight. That, I don't think you've seen that since I last saw you, talked to you. I did. I saw it. I watched it on Friday night before the Oscars, oh. and um, oh wow, wow! It's a really, really, really beautiful film. It's um, oh, I was yeah, I, I was I was hooked. I highly recommend, and this is going to sound very strange, but I highly recommend watching it with earphones. Oh, okay. Um, I find, I have found that if I am watching a film on my TV versus, like, watching it on, like, my iPad with earphones on, I stay much more connected when I've got the sound that close. Really? Okay. And it is, um, yeah, it's so moving. It's a really beautiful story. I'm, I'm excited to see it. It, um, it strikes me that, you know, since it did, controversy aside, it was eventually declared the winner, that it, yeah. I, can't, I can't remember the last time that there was, um, with all due respect to the, to the film, it's not, it has nothing to do with its quality, obviously, but just the way the film was mm-hmm. marketed and everything, that there has been kind of a lower-profile Best Picture winner. This is a movie that not very yeah. many people saw. And uh, La La Land was a movie that a lot of people saw. So when was the last time we saw, you know, a Best Picture winner that made, what, like $20 million at the box office? Is that? I don't know, you know? Um, Yeah. It's just a movie that was so, you know, I don't know. We need to talk about the way And it is not, it's not a mainstream film. Like, I would not, for instance, I don't think, it, it doesn't have a traditional structure where you've got a, a, you know, beginning, middle, and end with with, right. with a complete story arc and a and a happy ending. It's just not there. Right. Um, and so, like, I don't think I would say recommend it to my parents who are sort of traditional movie watchers. I I don't think that they would get it. Right. <laughs> um, uh, it's. It's just really beautiful. It's a very, it's a very intimate film. I'm very surprised. I'm well, very surprised at one. I'm thrilled because I yeah. feel like that was the right choice. But yeah, yeah, I'm excited to see it. I think I've been kind of watching to see when it comes out, at least to rent. And I think that's not this week, but I think next week it's available. 
Um, it is available on iTunes for rent. I rented it. Oh, already. Okay. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll it just it yeah, it just came out, which is why I watched it. And I meant to watch watch uh, Manchester by the Sea as well, but I I didn't get to it. So, what did you think about Hacksaw Ridge? Hacksaw Ridge, um, it's it's weird. Again, uh, we talked about this a little bit, but like war movies mm-hmm. in particular are not. I'm not the target audience, which is weird because I'm a thirty something male. I, I really, in like demographically, <laughs> I am the target audience. But I just am not interested in those movies. I was trying to think of, like, the war movies I have seen and how they compare, you know, things like Saving Private Ryan and yeah. even, you know, like Platoon and Apocalypse Now and, and things like that. You know, these are movies that, like, I can respect the filmmaking, but it's just not something that I can say I, I really enjoy, it. which is actually kind of, I think, how you felt right. about it, too, um, in our conversation. Yeah. I, it, it's kind of funny because, of course, to me, the most iconic of those movies is Saving Private Ryan. And this movie is kind of the exact opposite of it in a few ways. One of which is like Saving Private Ryan starts with 30 minutes of just the most insane war footage. Mm -hmm. You know, is that kind of like just, it it puts you right there. And then later in the film, you kind of like, you know, there's some character work. You kind of get to, this movie is the exact opposite. For the first like hour, I was like, "Oh, okay, I, maybe maybe this movie isn't so bad." What was Meryl talking about? <laughs> this movie isn't so brutal. And then it became <laughs> so unbelievably brutal that by the end, right. of it, I, I, you know, the second half of the movie, like, I just, how many times can you watch somebody's face get blown off? It, it's just, it's not for me. And um, yeah. again, I can respect the effects. I can respect the sound editing, and all. You know, I know it's. It's hard to do that, and, and especially in the way that they did. I'll go back on some of the things that I said about Mel Gibson because I, I think he did do a pretty good job directing this movie, actually. But It is just, unique. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know. So I thought it was I, well I was, made. I was thinking about our last conversation and, and why I was trying to articulate why the violence in Hacksaw Ridge is so much more affecting than... Um, say the violence in Saving Private Ryan or other war movies. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I think we're used to a certain type of violence, especially after Saving Private Ryan. It was sort of groundbreaking that effect. But I think, I think in war movies, violence tends to be rather epic, right? So you see it on a grand scale. Hacksaw Ridge, I, I mean, you, it's so in your face. I mean, you are up close and personal with each act of violence. Right. It's not, and and I think I think that was the distinguishing factor that made it so, um, uh, so breathtaking, and, yeah. uh, and I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. It's like whoa, right. um, yeah, it, it shakes you up a little bit. That's that's kind of what I mean by how many times can you watch somebody's face get blown off? Because it's not yeah, in right the same there. way. Yes, it's not in the same way that like we're so desensitized at this point to the gun violence in particular in films and television. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, you show a nipple and everybody goes crazy, but, you know, if you <laughs> if, if you shoot Jackson. somebody, right, if you shoot somebody, it, it, like, we, it, nobody responds. And, and in fact, like, a lot of times, you go to see these kinds of movies and people bring their kids there, young kids, and, you know, yes. it, they're, it's just, it's a really hard thing to rationalize for snowflakes like me, I guess, but it's just, it's, <laughs> it's a hard thing to to enjoy, 
and to get um uh, and again, I can respect it. It's it's not that I didn't like the movie. I'm glad I saw it. Um, but it's just I don't know. It's so it's so hard to it's so hard to take. And unless there's some character work that I'm really invested in the characters, I guess that's where war movies most often lose me, because it becomes about the violence and about the brutality, and not about mm-hmm. why there's violence and why there's brutality. Um, which right. I guess in this case, you know, this is a story that's been told many times before in a way. So maybe maybe that's why the film was made the way it was, was that they didn't feel like they had to tell this story of this war that we've seen portrayed so many times before. They, we didn't need to know the reasons why. We know the reasons why they're at war. Um, we did get some actually significant character work from Andrew Garfield. Um, mm-hmm. He was good. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, it was a little, it was, uh, he is, the way it's written, I mean, he really is a Christ-like figure, and the violence yeah. does sort of juxtapose that quite sh- shockingly. And um, and I think they stay true to that throughout. I think I think Andrew Garfield did a very excellent job with, with what he had to work with script-wise. Yeah. And um yeah. I I mean there were so many times in the movie I said, you know, this should this should really be good. Like I feel like I should be laughing at that line of dialogue or I feel right. like I should be because it is rather I mean it really does elevate him to a Christ-like figure um pr- pretty extremely. Yeah. And um like he's so saint-like yeah. that you almost have these moments where you're like that's not even real. But, but I think to some degree he was actually like that, Desmond Doss, and, you know, um, uh, yeah. I, I thought Mel Gibson did a good job. Is it my favorite movie too. of the year? No. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I thought the most effective part, and this is another kind of war thing, um, is with at the very end when they kind of showed the, the real life you know, guy that he had portrayed, and there's, you know, if you, mm-hmm. there's a minute or so of, of story, and, you know, I like that. I always like that when you, you get to see the real people involved. Yes. Um, this actually can have a nice tie-in to what we're talking about, um, marrow related unless there's anything else you wanted to, to mention about the Oscars. Nope. Okay. Let's do it. So, the, so we're here, we are talking about She-Devil today. <laughs> we've, we've finally swung yeah. back around to She-Devil. We were going to talk about She-Devil last time when we talked about uh, what did we end up talking about last time? Florence Foster Jenkins. Yes, yes. Um, and the reason which we were deceptive about was that I was able to talk to the director, Susan Seidelman, on the phone. I was able to talk to her for a while, and it just it, it hadn't been quite set up yet, but we knew it was going to happen then. So the reason I'm saying there's a nice little connection here is because actually a lot of my conversation with Susan um, revolved around this, the idea of like where her career has kind of gone since She-Devil. And, and before she made She-Devil, she made Desperately Seeking Susan, which was a, a major movie with Madonna, of course. She made a movie called Cookie. Susan Seidelman did. Susan Seidelman, yes. yes. Right. Uh, she made a movie called Cookie with Peter Falk and Diane Weiss, which actually was a Nora Ephron, right? I haven't seen that movie, but I'm going oh, to check it out. I haven't either. Um, one called Making Mr. Right with John Malkovich. She's made a lot of yes. very interesting stuff. But basically, after She-Devil, um, 
she she kind of stopped working within the studio system and went to TV. She did the the pilot of Sex and the City and a few other episodes of Sex and the City, and she started doing stuff, for the most part, some, like, TV films and stuff for, like, Showtime mm-hmm. and HBO and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, we were talking about why. And she said, um, you know, th- that's because there aren't very many character-oriented movies anymore that, that play in theaters. It's, you know, it's it's special effects and it's big production that plays in theaters. And the character-oriented movies are being made by cable companies at this point, HBO and Showtime and Netflix and Amazon, which I think is 100% yeah. true. So mm-hmm. it's not really surprising that a director like her, who is really focused on female-fronted productions yes. all the way through her career, um, has decided to kind of live outside the you know studio system because it, it wasn't working for her in the way that um, you know she wanted it to be. So, so yes, I got to have a conversation with Susan Seidelman, and it was really great. We got to talk for a little over an hour. We've emailed a little bit since. Um, we were hoping to include. <laughs> You and the call, Meryl, it didn't work out schedule-wise. We couldn't all three of us. I know, I know. I'm so excited you got to talk to her, though. Yeah. Yeah, it was lovely. She was able to fill us in. She didn't want to be recorded for the podcast, so I'm... um, You'll just have to take my word that I'm representing her. (laughs) I I was making notes as we were talking, and she did tell me, of course, that I'm allowed to give away anything that that we talked about. She just didn't want to be recorded, which was fine. That was her choice, so... Um, so yeah, let's start by just talking about She Devil. You want to give a, a rundown okay. on the plot for She Devil? Yes. Okay. She Devil stars Roseanne Barr, Ed Bagley Jr., and Meryl Streep. And Roseanne Barr and Ed Bagley Jr. are married. And Roseanne Barr is sort of a down and out housewife. Um, she they've got two kids. Uh, she and Ed Bigley Jr. have two kids, and he's an accountant in, in what I believe is New York. And, um, you know, she stays at home and has sort of let herself go. And he uh, he starts having an affair with Meryl Streep, who is this glamorous, blonde romance novelist, mm-hmm. uh, very wealthy. And he he leaves Roseanne's character for for Meryl Streep. And essentially, the movie from there is your ultimate revenge story, where Roseanne Barr's character is has has made a list of all the things she's going to do to destroy her ex-husband and, and his life, and she succeeds. Yeah. Um. Ed, what what year was it made? I think eighty nine. Okay. I think. Yeah. Um, so it, it would have been shot a, in eighty eight. Yeah. Yeah, you're correct. It's 1989 was the year it came out, and I, I tell you what, it's um, it's got a timestamp on it, man. Yeah, <laughs> it is of its day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is okay. I mean, those movies, you know, there there is something kind of sentimental for for people our age about it. I, I told Susan this movie was on TV all the time when we were growing up. All the time, I watched it all the time. I mean, it was right. just on. Right. Yeah. So there's that sentimental factor for us. I was kind of, we were talking about um, the idea of like how people discover, like kids now, let's say kids who are like in college maybe or high school or whatever. How do kids at this point, except for of course there's always, you know, every generation has a certain number of kids who are just really interested in movies and just died in or whatever. But um, how do kids 
nowadays find a movie 25 years old like this and reconnect to it. You know, I mean, what for our generation, it's it's certainly a known movie, but it's not in the canon at this point. You know, for, for no. future generations, so it's it's hard in that way. Although she did, Susan did mention that actually it it has been discovered by millennials to a certain degree, and that there's been a couple theater productions of it because people. Did, did you know about this? I didn't know about this. No. There's a couple of theater companies. There's one in New York. Um, I wrote down Nighthawks, but then I put a question mark there, so maybe that wasn't the name of the theater company. And uh, she said there's also a, a drag company in San Francisco that did a drag version of this. Uh, for oh, that tonight. could be quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, that. I mean, that would be that would be the way to go. Yeah. Because it does have that. Um, it, it has that camp to it yes. that yes. drag has, and so that doesn't surprise me at all that 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 you know somebody's tapped into that, right? Because it is very uh, campy. Yeah. How do you feel about this movie? Oh, you know, <laughs> it's um, it's it's very very campy. It it has a it has funny moments. I think. I think it is of its time, and it, it the you know the the sexual politics of it um, mm-hmm. are no are no longer as funny right. as they once were because right. because I think gender roles have shifted enough where uh, y- y- you know we don't accept these tropes as a as, as a given anymore. Yep. And and so I mean when I watched it, I I questioned. <laughs> You know, I questioned the portrayal of every of all of the characters involved because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the spurned ex-wife out for revenge, the, you know, the the completely, you, you know, the wealthy spoiled romance novelist, you know, character right. that Meryl Streep plays. I mean, they are very one-dimensional characters. Well, and very. it was also. It was also of an era where, like, you know, Joan Collins and um, – am I thinking of the right person? Was she a romance novelist? I know Joan Collins is a is an actress, too. Who am I thinking of? Um, uh, romance novelist. There's um, – oh, my gosh. I know who you're talking about. I'm going to look it up. Um, but, you know, it was, of a, it was of an era where, like, those, you know, those books – you, you know, you could make a great career by by doing exactly what Mary Fisher, which is Meryl Streep's character, what she does in the movie. You know, it's not right. It's not unbelievable that there would there would be somebody like her in 1989. It's just as you say, you know, all these years later, um, we've evolved to a certain extent. And I want to I want to try not to use this phrase. Uh, I I spoke to Susan and <laughs> too much because I know how annoying that could be, but. Actually, again, that's a lot of what our conversation was based around, was the idea that, you know... Yeah, um, I think it's important. I'd love to hear her take on that, because I'm sure she has insight. Right. One of the first things we started talking about, like, I don't know how we got on the subject, but we talked about, like, you know, how would the movie... You know, if you had to do it over again, if you were doing it now, what about the film would you update? And we got onto the the subject of, like, you know, again, the, the way women are, are portrayed, and she's like, you don't really probably remember that like in the 80s having a woman like Roseanne Barr on you was know, groundbreaking 
it was groundbreaking. And, you know, and to, to really top line, I know Meryl was the bigger star and got top billing, but really it's, it's kind of Roseanne's movie, more so than Meryl's. And, you know, oh, yeah. to, in order to, like, have somebody, you know, completely the opposite of Roseanne, you know, Meryl Streep was, was the exact opposite of Roseanne, and Roseanne was the exact opposite of Meryl. And that's why that kind of, it worked in that regard. And she said, you know, now we have people like Melissa McCarthy and Rebel Wilson and people who, like, you know, if you were going to remake this movie, those are the people that could hypothetically play the Roseanne Barr role. You know, I mean, this is right. stereotyping of the physical looks. But, right. you know, these are these are probably who would be considered for, for roles like that. And it wouldn't be weird nowadays to, to do that, you know, but back then it really was. And um, so, yeah, there was, there was some interesting stuff there. And actually I asked her, I'm always kind of fascinated and it was really nice to be able to ask somebody who of course was not just involved in the movie, but directed the damn thing. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the things like was Meryl the first choice was Roseanne the first choice as we've talked about yeah, yeah. every episode, the idea of like, you know, this movie could have gone different directions. Um, she did say Meryl was always Mary Fisher. She said that she was one of the first people to read the script. Um, they had the same agent, I guess. And so when mm-hmm. um, when Susan decided she wanted to do the movie, she passed it on to her agent, who was also Meryl's agent. And she said that Meryl's hairdresser, um, who I wrote down his name somewhere here, which is the same person that she, when she won the Oscar for Iron Lady, she spent a uh-huh. lot of her time actually thanking her longtime yes. hair, and, hair and makeup person. It was that guy. I, I wrote down his name, but yeah. I can't find it here. He had seen, they had done a, oh, Roy Helland is his name. They had done a BBC miniseries about this story because it was based on a book. So before She Devil came out, the BBC did like a six hour version of this movie. That Roy Helland, really? her, yeah her hair and makeup artist had seen him really loved it. So it was kind of through him that she decided, yeah, maybe I, I will do this movie. He kind of convinced Meryl Streep to do this movie. Um, so she said that Meryl was always the first choice, but she gave me a few names of people who were considered for the Roseanne part that I thought were fascinating. The first of which was Angelica Houston, which I think would have been really Whoa. interesting. Yeah, well, yeah um, it's a completely different movie. <laughs> you want to talk, yes. You want to talk about a completely different movie. The the way that she said that they almost went, and she said it just became it came down to the glamour thing. She said they almost went with Cher for that role. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. Wouldn't that have been different? Yeah, yeah that would have been insane. I don't think you can make Cher a down and out housewife. I don't know. Well, she said that's the reason that that it didn't end up going that way. She said it would, you know, they liked share. It just I mean, came down to the idea that, for like, instance, they tried in Moonstruck, and I mean, she's wonderful in Moonstruck. It's one of my favorite films. But still, she's still share. I mean, she's so right. striking, even with like the unplucked eyebrows and the gray hair. You're like, yeah, you're share. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Wow. Yeah, Susan said basically the same thing. And the third name, which is the one I think I would have maybe even liked more than Roseanne, was Kathy Bates. But she said that Kathy Bates um, just wasn't oh, famous enough for the studio to approve back then. 
Um, wow. Roseanne's uh, show, it was, you know, she was, she was pretty famous by that point. I think the show had either done one or two seasons, but the show was pretty huge already by that point. So Roseanne was more of a commodity that they were interested in, in working with. Um, and it's, yeah. I'm going to throw it out there. I think part of the problem, and I mean, this is a lot to put on one person, but I feel like one of the reasons why the film doesn't necessarily hold up is because I don't, I, I don't think Roseanne has the acting chops. Oh, interesting. It, it, Did you not it, like it is, Roseanne? Or it, um, yeah, I mean, I like I like her fine. She's 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 not terrible, but like the narration is very is very one note and almost like she's reading from a recipe book, oh, and okay. that may have been purposeful. I I don't know. Um, but, you know, I think about somebody like Kathy Bates in there who may have added some layers and some and some yeah. nuance um, to what on the page is is a fairly one-note character. You know, because mm-hmm. I feel like Meryl Streep does that to some degree. Like, I, I kind of feel bad for Mary Fisher by the end there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you, you know, she really sees the – she really sees the mess she got herself into. Yeah, and so I, I think the movie might hold up better if if somebody with a, a you know a little more acting chops had been in that main role. Yeah, could be. Like I said, I I I was really intrigued by the idea of Kathy Bates, and I I'd love to see that version oh, of it. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, that'd be I, amazing. I didn't dislike Roseanne. I've uh, I don't know Roseanne. Actually, I think kind of the reason that I I particularly um, liked her was it seemed like. Um, there was a little bit more warmth to me. That may sound crazy, but there was a little bit more warmth to her. No, that's true. Than than some of the other times that I've seen her. I just watched this documentary um, called Roseanne for President. Have you heard of this? Oh, I haven't. You, you know that she ran for for president back in um, what would that have been? 2012. Uh, no. She did. <laughs> she ran. I miss that. She ran. Well, she didn't. She was only on the ballot in like six states, I think. But she um, she ran in the Green Party. That was one of the things that I think people just kind of would assume because she's you know a Hollywood star that she would be liberal. But she mm-hmm. actually comes at that time it was Obama's reelection, and she came down probably harder on him than she did on Mitt Romney, actually in a lot of ways. Um, wow! But so she ran in the Green Party and. Um, so it was kind of about how her and Jill Stein were, you know, going on the campaign trail, and and Jill Stein eventually won the won the nomination of the Green Party. But it was kind of interesting. Um, I think the reason is, you know, she would go to all these rallies for her and stuff, but it was similar to what Donald Trump did, although he was successful at it, so it worked for him. But like, you know, she was a very well known person. And a likable person, I think. I know there are people who don't agree mm-hmm. with that, but I, I find her to be a likable person. But she, as, as do um, I. Yeah. But she never really gave any sort of like, I intend to do this. She would just say things like, you know, anti-Obama, anti-Romney thing. And she would say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. But she never said what she would do, you know, at least in the documentary. Right. Um, so I think that's why she never really got completely off the ground. And she also, you know, it was five years ago now, but 
she, a lot of her campaign, I think, too, was running on the idea of, of legalizing marijuana, which I'm a, I'm a proponent of. I think that should be legalized. But I don't know that there are people who, you know, I don't think there are enough people who feel so strongly about that that that's their number one issue, basically. And I think for her, that's her number one issue. So um, yeah. more so than... I think there are other people who value other things maybe a little bit higher than legalizing marijuana. And um, so anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. I just got off on a little tangent. But um, I, I saw that not long ago, the documentary, which is, again, of her five years ago, and then watched this movie, which was 20, 30 years ago. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Her her characterization, I, I, I don't know. I felt sympathy for her, but... It um kind of what you were saying, she kind of, it seemed to me like she was gunning for Mary Fisher. I felt like Mary Fisher almost got screwed more than Ed Begley Jr.'s character. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, which no, I think because, that's true. And um, it's funny, too, because we, with with Susan, she was saying, you know, a lot of male critics just dismissed this movie as male bashing. And I said, you know, it's funny because I'm a, I'm a 30, you know, I'm a I'm a straight 34-year-old male, and I don't see it as male bashing. I was like, I actually kind of felt the opposite way about it, where, like, and Bigley Jr. didn't really get it as, like, didn't, he didn't take it hard enough. Like, he, his life should have been <laughs> destroyed more than it was, and Mary Fisher kind of got the brunt of it to a certain extent. Um, oh, yeah, and she even at the end is like, yeah, you can come over and make us dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah. So. Yeah, I will. I. Yeah, I. I agree. I think. Um. Yeah, I don't think he suffered that much. I mean, he was still he was running around on Meryl Streep and. He was running around around until he went to jail. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah, he just he was a dumb. It's sort of a fascinating time capsule. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's a it's a fascinating time capsule. Mostly because of because of the gender roles, <laughs> more than anything else, yes. I think probably. Um, I will tell you that I I love a Martinez in this movie. You know, he was a soap star in the eighties. He was on a soap opera called Santa Barbara, and I oh, can yeah. remember. Yeah, I can remember. I would I would be homesick. I was sick a lot as a kid, and. Um, I can remember I would be I would be homesick and we lived out on a ranch and uh we didn't have cable we just got like you know the antenna channels and we got you know ABC NBC and then we got three channels and um you know my dad would come in from you know <laughs> you know working the ranch livestock or whatever and he'd come in he'd make lunch and we'd sit down and we watched the barber together I mean, I was in elementary school. I was maybe like, you know, six, seven years old, and I'm watching A. Martinez on Santa Barbara, the soap opera. It's amazing. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, But one of my favorite parts of the movie is when he brings the beer and the cheese whiz to the interview with People Magazine. Oh, yeah. A. Martinez plays Meryl Streep's butler. Right. And um, she's got an interview with People Magazine and the the journalist comes and sits down and he brings refreshments and it's a tray of beer and cheese whiz, which absolutely mortifies Meryl Streep. And he obviously does it on purpose to right. to dig, but I did laugh out loud. I like that. Actually speaking of, I like that Meryl, uh, the 
the Deborah Rush, who plays the People reporter. She's been in a lot of. Yeah. Um, she's she's a great actress. I think she's really good. So it was, it yeah. was cool to see this. So a a Mar I also love a Martinez because he is in one of my favorite John Wayne movies called The Cowboys, and we talked uh-huh. about it in an earlier podcast episode. It's a yeah. it's a film with Bruce Stern and. Um, one of the um, Carradine brothers and, and A. Martinez and, you know, John Wayne plays this rancher who all of his, you know, ranch hands have left for the gold rush and he has no way to move his cows to market. And so he hires these schoolboys to help him. And and A. Martinez, it, he, he, he has one of my favorite lines in any film. Okay. He, he plays this. He plays this teenage. He plays this teenage kid, you know, who comes in. He's not one of the school kids, right? He's an outsider. Right. He comes in. He wants a job with the rest of the kids, and uh, he, um, you know, as sort of a test of his maturity and his ability to do this job, John Wayne has to have these boys ride this wild horse. And he kind of rides in and he gets on this horse and he, he gets the horse under control. He's like the one kid who can do it. And he, John Wayne goes up to him and he goes, what's your name, son? He goes, my name is Cimarron. Sure. He goes, what's your, that's like half a name. What's your full name? And he goes, there is no more name. I am mistake of nature. and and, um yeah it's one of my favorite lines ever and it's the way he delivers it it's just so serious it's funny because when you said he was in a john wayne movie i was like i can't be thinking about the right person there's no way this guy was old enough to have also been in a john wayne movie but yeah it was made in the 70s right 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 yeah it was made in the 70s john williams did the music it's beautiful Yeah. I always forget that, that, like, John Wayne, you know, lived until, you know, was still making movies right. in the 70s. I, you know, he seems <laughs> of a certain era that, you know, it doesn't seem possible right. that, that, of course, it is. So, yeah, no, he is good in this. I, I don't know. He, he doesn't have that much to do, but, like, he's one of those people who, like, a lot of it is through his look as much as anything else. Like, he just has this look yeah. on his face most of the time that tells most of the story. Um, he essentially yeah. is the pool boy. Yeah, no, he he is, and um, yeah, this movie is is kind of filled with interesting, as a lot of a lot of these movies are filled with, you know, a few people that you would remember from other things like Deborah Rush and, and Linda Hunt, of course, has a Linda Hunt has a role partway through. It's not a, it's also not a huge role, but it's a, that one more so than some of the other ones is a really significant role. She sets a lot of what happens to Roseanne in motion. So, you know, that's an essential yes. role. But um yeah, so there's some there's some good actors throughout the whole thing. I don't think the problem is the acting. I don't think the problem is really anything other than, you know, it's just it's a little bit dated. And that's just the way it goes sometimes, you know? Yeah, it's hard to avoid. I mean, I don't think there are I don't think there are many films that stand the test of time. I right. I think that's why we call them classic films. And if you uh-huh. look at if you really look at how many films are made um versus how many sort of last in, in our memory and in sort of the cultural dialogue, it's very few. Right. Yeah, no, I'm so. I'm with you. And and a lot of times when it's things it's you know, a lot of 
a lot of like comedies in particular, things that were funny yeah. in a certain era become not funny, you know, through like, you know, evolving views on different subjects like gender roles or even like, you know, if, if you watch an episode of, I've been talking about this lately, like if you watch an episode of Friends, you know, which was huge when we were in high school, right? That, how many yeah. gay jokes do they make per episode? You know what I mean? Like, it, it, Oh, it, yeah. In a way that, like, now looking back on it, you're like, oh, yeah, in the 90s, that was an insult to call somebody gay. Now that's not, yeah. you know, like, you don't hear people say that. We've evolved past the point where that's a cheap, funny laugh. It's still a cheap laugh, but it's not a funny laugh anymore. Um, so it's it's that kind of thing where it suffers not because they were doing anything wrong or or anybody was consciously making a choice. It's just... It was made in 1989, <laughs> you know what I mean? And right. we were in a different time period, and that's okay. Um, yeah. I think all of people involved, Meryl, Roseanne, and Susan as a director, too, are all pretty outspoken to the point of, like, we know where they stand on these issues, and we know that this was not a tacit, like, it's okay. <laughs> you know, they're not trying to make a point to say, anything that, uh, you know, is offensive, even by today's standards, basically. Right. It's, it's just the way it was in 1989, so I don't know. Um, one of the other things I asked Susan was, this is kind of the first real comedy that Meryl had done. She had done Falling right. in Love, which was a romantic comedy with Junior, although that movie's not really that funny. And no. Heartburn, which is more of a dramedy. Oh, God, I love I that movie. And that one is yeah. funny in parts, but this is the yeah. first, like, straight-up comedy that she'd done. So I said, you know, was Meryl nervous about doing comedy? Was this something that, because it was new, was something that um, seemed, you know, tricky to her? And, and sure. Susan says that, no, she'd done comedy on stage before, which is, which is true. Um, and that actually, in a lot of ways, like, the way Hollywood pigeonholes people, like it seemed yes. like Meryl was making an effort to get out of, you know, the out of Africa, ironweed, you know, like stuff that she'd done shortly before that, that it kind of pigeonholed her as like a great dramatic actress. She wanted to try something new. Um, sure. So she said, um, too, I wrote down this, what I thought was a really good quote was that, a lot of comedy, at least good comedy, is about good timing. And so you have to be really smart to do it because you just have to have that kind of innate natural ability that comes yes. with timing. And she said that if, if nothing else, Meryl is a very intelligent person, which I think, you know, even even the Trump haters would get that at this point. Like, you can say what you right. want about her, but she is a smart person. You can tell. Um, yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Said, yeah, and as she said, it seemed to her, just from observing, that Meryl really seemed to enjoy playing a, a part of somebody who is completely different from really every aspect of who she is in real life. That Mary Fisher is really the opposite end of the spectrum from her in a lot of ways. So that just oh, seemed yeah. like a good time to, to play a role like that. Now, you're an actress. I'm an actor. Those are fun roles to play, right? Like when you're playing somebody... They're very fun. It's It's kind of an excuse to to be somebody else for a while. It's it's fun. I could yeah, see why they're wanting to do this. And, and, you know, with something like that, you can take it to the extreme. I mean, you don't have to hold back. And that's something Meryl Streep does not do in this film. Right. Um, I mean, she commits to the absurdity of it really beautifully. I mean, I enjoyed her performance in that. I did too, yeah. 
I thought she was quite funny. And I've um, I've always I've always liked her I've always liked her comedic performances. Me too. I I really love her comedic performances. Um I think she's I, I sometimes actually think of those as some of my favorites, even more so yeah. than some of the drama stuff. I, she's really a gifted comedian. Um, yeah. This uh, idea that we're kind of on right now is also something that in the conversation, you know, Susan said, well, her mm-hmm. personal favorite scene was a long tracking shot where she and Ed Begley Jr. Are, are in a car and they're driving home and they get back. And do you remember the scene and the maid is leaving? And she's saying, I quit when I either signed up to work for you, I signed up to work for you, and now there's this other guy here and these kids and this dog, and she just quits. And this whole long shot continues with her, with Mary Fisher and Ed Begley Jr. going into the house, and the kids are going crazy, and everything bad's happening, and it just leads to Meryl having this melt (laughs) towards the end (laughs) of this scene. And she said the way that she did that was so you know, it was so amazing. She said it was like, it was calculated in a way that like beat by beat, but not in the way that like it feels calculated, but that it was so measured, basically, the build-up to the scene in, in just exactly the right way that it needed to at the end. That she could have that breakdown and have it be both funny, but come from a place of like also moving the plot along and, and having, right. you know, very important for the story, but have it be funny, you know, that I can't remember what she says, but I remember the scene distinctly where she says, I'm taking control of my life. You know, she, she says it in this <laughs> yeah. very over-the-top way, something like that. And, um, it's amazing. Yeah. She's I, taking I back her because, life. Because there's, there's, some tr- there's, just, there's always truth in her performances, and I think, yeah. I think that's why it's so funny is because she just sort of taps into that hysteria that – I think we have all felt in some capacity where you just feel so out of control that you're going to lose it. And she's done that in other films too. I think that's what she captures so well is just sort of the, the sort sort of self-aware frustration with with your very existence. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do you have favorite scenes from this movie? Well, I, I I don't know why, but the cheese was, it just, it, (laughs) You know, she's trying to give that interview, and she's trying so hard to keep control of the situation, and everything is sort of falling apart with this outside person, you know, observing the person who she absolutely doesn't want to reveal any of that to. I enjoy that. And a lot of that is revealed by the mother, right? A lot of that stuff that she doesn't want to be revealed is revealed by the mother. She was kind of a scene seer. Did you... um, She was. did you look up any of the reviews from this movie? I didn't. Um, I it's did kind not. of funny. Sylvia Miles plays the mother. Yes, yes. I thought she was yeah. great. I really liked her. Um, it's funny. I, I read several reviews of this movie, and one of them really attacked Sylvia Miles, like came after really? her so hard, talking about how she played the role so over the top. And so ridiculous. And I thought, I, I'm not seeing what? that. I, yeah, I don't know. No. I, I should I should find out who, who made that review. I also got a, um, when when talking with Susan, I, we, uh, one of the things that we were talking about were these reviews, because, again, she was saying, you know, a lot of male critics just did not get this movie and just felt like it was male bashing and dismissed it. And I said, but have you read Roger Ebert's review? Because he actually was really nice about this movie and 
I think Roger Ebert was always really nice in Meryl's movies. Yeah. He, I, he had a really soft spot for her. And, um, but she told me a story. She said, here's the thing. She said, I was pregnant when we made this movie. She says, I went into labor the day before what? or something that this movie came out. She said that she was in labor, and while she was in labor, the TV was on, and Siskel and Ebert were rating this movie that she had made while she was in labor. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, so that's a good, I can't that's even a good imagine. little imagine. What a surreal experience. Yeah, yeah. But so Roger Ebert gave it a really nice review. I mean, he didn't by any means say it was a perfect movie, but he was pretty complimentary about it. It wasn't him that said sure. Sylvia Miles was over the top, but there was a lot right. of people who didn't get this movie even back then. Um, it was semi-successful. The, the budget for this movie, um, I got her to tell me, I got Susan to tell me because I couldn't find it anywhere. Oh, great. Um, she said it was about $18 million. And domestically, okay. it only made $15 million. So it lost money domestically. But she said it did pretty well um, overseas and that it did pretty well in country. It certainly didn't lose money when you factor in, you know, the global sure. box office um, in places like France and Italy and um, England and Japan. Nice. But she said where this movie really made its money, which is no surprise to either one of us, is on television. TV. Yep. Yeah, all of us moved back that way. So, um, yeah. Um, there were just a couple yeah. other things. As long as we're talking about this conversation, um, yeah, I want to hear more. The uh, so we talked about the actresses who were considered for this movie, but we didn't talk about the people who were considered for Ed Begley Jr.'s part because I had seen a bunch of names okay. online. I saw Jeff Bridges, Harrison Ford. Jeffrey Jones, um, and Jeff Daniels was also listed. So these four guys were listed at, you know, different points on the Internet as people who were considered. And I said, you know, I basically just said, true or false. And Susan said, it could be. She was like, you know, the way these things go is like, basically you just get a list of, like, actors who are in the right age range that the studio approves of. Um, so, you know, she said, I don't remember if any of those people, like, came in or auditioned or were seriously considered. So for whatever that means. She said they just got that list of, like, people who the studio approved of who were age-appropriate. Right. Um, she said that they did offer it to Bill Murray, and he turned it down. That would have been, that would have been a really different movie, too. It would have been so strange. Yes. She said basically at that point she didn't think the role was big enough for him. You know, she I don't think she really got an answer why he turned it down, but that was what she suspected. And um, the other one that they actually made an offer to, so it, you know, must have gone pretty far, was uh, Charles Grodin, which would have been kind of interesting, too. Uh, yeah, very. So, I think wow. I kind of would have, I could see that. I kind of like Charles Grodin, actually. I could see that. You know what? I can, too. I can, yeah. too. I actually don't know that he's that dissimilar from Ed Bagley Jr. I think Ed Bagley Jr. is a little bit more likable, and Charles Grodin's a little bit more, like, sarcastic. It's kind of more of, like, the Albert Brooks kind of thing. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think I think Ed Bagley can kind of go with... I, I, <laughs> uh, I feel like Charles Grodin would be a different kind of smarmy. Yes. In yes, playing that, that role, not that I think Charles Grodin is smarmy, but but I think yeah, I think 
I think it would have been a little more sinister. So yeah, I, I, so I don't too. know. And it's probably because I've seen I've seen him in the role so many times that I feel like Ed Bagley was a good choice. I mean, because he is yep. very likable in the most annoying way in that part. You're like, ah. <laughs> I asked her if there was any truth to the rumors um, that Meryl at one point had considered playing the Roseanne part because I saw that somewhere too. And she kind of, she thought about it for a second. And she goes, you know, maybe. And she said, she eventually said, well, you know, she said, yeah, I think I do kind of remember something about that. Um, she said, but it never really went very far. She said from her perspective, from Susan's perspective, she always saw Meryl as Mary Fisher. And I think that Meryl might have momentarily considered taking the other role, but that that would have passed kind of quickly. That that was never a major, major thing. Could you see that, Meryl yeah. playing the Roseanne part? You know, I can because she's fantastic. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I, mean, I can too. She, it, would have, it would have been very, it would have been very different. Right. Um, but I think she could have totally done it and pulled it off and actually been quite brilliantly funny. I think so, too. Yeah, it kind of almost would have been more interesting in a way. Um, yeah. And so then you argue, well, like, Meryl Streep is just as glamorous. It, it kind of goes against what we were saying earlier about, like, Cher, because, like, Meryl Streep is really as glamorous as Cher. It's a different kind of glamorous, maybe. But, like, um, you know, if Meryl Streep can pull it off, so can Cher in a way. It's just, like, the perception of, like, That's we have true. a hard time seeing it because we we watched Roseanne do it. So it seems like taking a, a leap to a certain extent. But um, so then I said, or maybe well, it's because I feel that Meryl Streep is a, you know, the ultimate chameleon. Right. Yeah. I for some reason I can buy her doing, you know, transforming herself into that more than I can, you know, somebody like Cher, who is kind of, I mean, really, really attached to her persona and her like image, right? Like with Cher, it's always yeah. an image. Like she looks good always. You know, and Meryl yeah. does too, but she's not afraid to like, that's what they always say about, it's, it's almost defensive in a way because like you say, they say this about certain female comedians that they don't say about with guy comedians, but uh-huh. if you take this out of the equations, one of the things I've heard many times about Julia Louis-Dreyfus and why she's such an amazing comedian, which I think she is, is that she's yeah. not afraid to look unattractive or silly or stupid on film. She's not afraid to, like, do that. So, you know, like the dance that she did on Seinfeld. She didn't look physically while she was doing it. But that's why it worked, because she wasn't afraid to. She wasn't self-conscious while she was doing that. Again, they don't say this about guy comedians. I don't want to come across as anything other than, like... But to a certain extent, they say that about... You know, people who are just really good. It just happens to be the only thing that about women who are really good. But they say that and mean it as a compliment in a weird way. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Meryl Streep has that same quality where, like, I don't think she's always consumed with looking good so much as, like, being real. And I think Cher she maybe. Goes for it. Yeah, I think Cher maybe would have a hard time looking bad. I'm so bad yeah. isn't the right word, but. You know, she I know would have a hard time know. letting down that level of self-consciousness, maybe. Maybe. Right. I don't know. We haven't seen Sharon in enough movies to really assess it, I don't think. But No. Anything um, else that Susan yes. said? Yes. She pointed this thing out to me, which I had never heard of before. Have you heard of Taste of Street? Have you heard of this Instagram thing? No. What's Susan it called? It's called Taste of Street. It's on Instagram. 
So okay. it's this it's this it's this thing. I don't even know how to describe it. You'll just have to you'll just have to look at it. Susan said, Well it's on Taste of okay. Street. I said, What's that? And she said, Just Google Taste of Street. And um I think she thought it was a website, but I think it's only on Instagram where it's this person I don't know who puts together pictures of Meryl Streep and different food items and it like relates to to like she'll be sitting on a giant hoagie sandwich or like the one she did was like her in a giant pink donut. <laughs> so, oh, I'm looking at it. It's bizarre. It's very bizarre. Meryl Streep and a glass of wine. Yes. <laughs> and there's a there ton of them. Oh, sh- Oh my gosh, she's coming out of a Chinese food box from yeah. rowing with chopsticks from River Wild. This is crazy. Yeah. So she told me about that. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. But Susan was kind enough to, to fill me in on that. Um, so oh, I think people hilarious. should check it out. It's somebody who's, you know, doing something very unique. It's like it's like watching performance art versus like going to see a concert. You're not really sure what to make of it at first. It's like, okay, I, it's cool. Like, I'm not saying it's not cool, but it's also like I don't entirely understand what the point of this is. But it's interesting. <laughs> uh, she's wrapped up in a cannoli. <laughs> yeah. So this these go so on strange. forever. There's a million of them. Wow. Um, the, the last thing with Susan, and then we can move on to our other segments, is I just asked her, I said, okay, the question that, of course, we want to know is, what is Meryl Streep like on set? You know, what was she like yeah. while she was making this movie with you? And I wrote down a bunch of things. This wasn't an exact quote because she, I'm sure, said other things around it. I was typing as, you know, fast as I could. But she said that she was totally professional and very low maintenance. She said she was so secure in what she does and her ability to do it that there's no need to massage her ego. And she said basically she's not one of those actors who you have to, like, say, oh, you look great and you don't have to puff her up. She just doesn't need that. amazing. Yeah. She said working with her was straightforward and very easy and that she doesn't have complicated emotions. She said she's so secure about who she is, and for her it's about the work. She said she was never afraid to go for this moment, which echoes kind of what you were saying earlier. And from there we talked about that that long scene and why that was yeah. her favorite. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, um, I sort of assumed she was like that on set. But I don't think, um, you know, a I I think a secure actor is a rare being. Right. And that's not a diss on actors. It's just the nature of the business where, uh, I mean, your entire livelihood depends on uh, essentially your uh, ability to win over a casting director. And so right. much of it is out of your control. Yep. And it's not about how good you are. It's about whether or not somebody thinks you fit a type or right. the producer likes you or there's so many factors and you can't control it. And so I think the I think the industry breeds insecurity in that regard and, and you know, um Yeah, and competitive. Obviously right? so. Yeah. Yeah. And comparing comparing people because it's five guys or five five women who look exactly alike from each other. That's a la la land, right? That 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 audition that Emma Stone walked out of and there's 15 other, you know, young women with reddish hair that look exactly like her that are wearing essentially the same thing as her. And it's that thing of like, you know, yeah, you you might be capable of doing this, but so might two or three of those other people out there in the hallway. So, like, you know, what are you going to bring that they aren't? What are you willing to do that they aren't? What are you willing to, you know, like... 
how much, yeah. how little can we pay you? You know, little things that, like, you know, will give you just the tiniest bit of advantage over the five other people, 10, 50 other people who could play the part and also desperately want the part, you know? It, it is hard. It is, a, it is an industry, like you say, where there's so much competition and there's so much... It's hard to feel secure until you're at a certain point, but... Yeah, there really is something to be said from coming from a stage background as well. You yep. know, I'm sure having gotten her MFA at Yale, they put her through, um, you know, put her through the paces, and that's, you know, that's no easy task, and, and the stage world in New York is, you know... It's not for the, it's not for the faint-hearted, right. and you know, and she and she really does. She appears to have that approach to to acting. That sort of I'm a I'm a working stage actor, and I and I know this isn't always so, but usually when when actors come from that theater background, they are sort of more down to earth and focused on the work. And obviously, that's not true in all instances, but. Right. Um, because it, you know, professional stage acting does require more. Um, what is sort of marathon like in terms of the amount of energy, and and time and and work. I think I know the answer to this. Is is this is this essential, Meryl, for you? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, it's not in no. that ten pack of if somebody's the ten film starter pack. It's not making it in there. No, I was not making it in there. Okay. <laughs> I'm it assuming it's not making it in there for you either. Probably not, no. But um, I, I don't know. I feel attachment to it because I got to talk to Susan. And, you know, I, I respect the movie. I, I like the movie. It's just, you know. I'm very nostalgic about, about it from my yeah. use, that's for sure. Yes. And, um, you know, it's an, it's certainly an interesting movie and um, not a bad way to spend a little bit of time watching a movie, you know? It's it's good. So, no, no, not at all. All right. Shall we move on to our other segments here? Which would you rather start Let's with? Let's do it. The, the Six Degrees or Movies Meryl Was Almost In? Which would you rather start with? Let's do Movies Meryl Was Almost In. Okay. We're mixing it up today. We usually go in the other order. Yeah, I, I know, like it. right? Um, I'm gonna give you one today. It's it's neither here. I feel like I'm gonna run out of these eventually, otherwise, because I can't find like I know, right? And I do, and I and I never look, so I'm like, it's all it's all it's all up to you, Zach. <laughs> well, and actually, yeah, it's at this point where like I've kind of assumed the role. So, like, you know, if you want to look yeah. up some, don't feel like you can't. That's totally fine. Uh, one of the ones that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, really would have been interesting was Meryl almost played, you remember that movie Frida that uh, Salma Hayek did? Yeah. Almost Meryl Streep. Really? Yeah, she almost played Frida Kahlo. Wow. It's been a long time since I saw that movie. I don't think I've seen that movie since it came out, so I can't really speak I on it. To, yeah, I don't know the movie well enough to be like, that would be really good, or I don't know if I could see it because I don't remember it all that well. Um, well, I'm sure she could pull it off because she's amazing. It's, right. It's her, I mean, I think I think Salma Hayek 
really did a wonderful job with it and so distinct. And Frida Kahlo had such a distinct look that I, yes. you know, right now I'm like Meryl Streep. <laughs> right. That uh, is kind of the one thing about it, right, is like it's almost, it's kind of it's good that it went to Salma Hayek in that way. It's another case of like it might have been another case of like a white woman playing <laughs> a part that like, you know, Speaking of Emma Stone, who won the Oscar, we can't forget that, you know, a couple of years ago she was in that Aloha movie with Cameron Crowe where she was playing an allegedly Asian person. Emma Stone does not look, you know, like that's that's an inappropriate no. choice. Right? Yeah, you, so, you, can't, you can't get away with it anymore. Right. So, um, yeah. In that way, it's good that Sama Hayek got maybe the role of her career. I don't know if I've seen her in anything better than that. You know, it was a fantastic role, and she did nail it, I thought. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Good for Salma Hayek. Yeah. So, yeah, she that, really did. That's the uh, movie Meryl was almost dead for this week. The Six Degrees, one from Good last one. week that we did, was uh, Shailene Woodley. Uh, did you did you do this? Did you think of any? Um, I... I, I did well the first thing I thought of was Big Little Lies, but I think right. we're excluding T V, right? Well, we said specifically that one we would because that hadn't come out yet and she's also in it with not only Nicole Kidman, who we talked about this last time, I said it doesn't count because she's right. in it with Nicole Kidman who's in the hours. But not only that, I forgot momentarily, Reese Witherspoon was also in a Meryl Street movie. So like all you know, too many connections. Which one? She she was in rendition with Meryl Streep. Oh, and I've never seen rendition. Yeah, rendition is Meryl and Jake Gyllenhaal and Reese Witherspoon. And I feel like there's a fourth in that that's well-known, but I can't remember off the top of my head. I think I've only seen that one one time. But those are like the three big players in that one. Because she did that one, mm. and she also did Lions for Lambs, which was her, Tom Cruise, and Robert Redford. So it's like they were in the same year, and they were both kind of political. And it's like all these right. major, major film stars in these political movies that neither of them did particularly well. So they kind of get, I don't know, put together in my head, even though they're not really that similar. Yeah, they sort of all blend together. Yeah. So yeah. And they're not huge um, roles okay. for Meryl either movie, too. But So, yes, let's take Big no, Little Lies recording. off of that. Okay. So um, surely there's a connection somewhere between, like, either Kate Winslet in the divergent theories or oh what else you know you know who maybe else the is descendants yes i thought the oh, descendants too um actually in the descendants isn't isn't judy greer in the descendants she is cuz she's also an adaptation she is oh she is she's the waitress yeah god i love yeah. judy greer so much I, didn't I feel like she should be a mega it, star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, with the Divergent series, I know he, I don't think he was in the first one, but Jeff Daniels is in at least one of the, like, sequels in that series, and he was in The Hours with Meryl Streep. Oh, is he really? Yeah. Oh, God, I need to rewatch The Hours. I saw, yeah, I, saw I think I saw it in London once. Yeah, we should, maybe, maybe we should do The Hours next. Yeah, we could. We could. Yeah. Um, the the ones I thought of were um, she was it was Shailene Woodley was just in a movie called Snowden that came out this year with, that Oliver Stone directed. Yes. And uh, yeah, yeah. Cage is in that. So speaking of the adaptation connection, um, did you see it? I 
did, but I wasn't paying close enough attention to it to, like, say, I, it's one that I, again, need to, like, revisit. It was one of those days where I put it on, but then I had, like, a thousand emails to catch up on. And I remember looking up being like, wait, what's going on? And I didn't have time to rewind it, so I just kind of, like, played it and remember thinking I may as well have just not had that on because I didn't pay any attention to it. So I need to go back. Yeah, I do that. And check it out. But um, the one other one that I thought of, this is way more than we need to do, but uh, Shailene Woodley was in a re- what I thought was a really interesting, really small um, independent movie called, I think it was called White Bird in a Blizzard. Um, yes, I want to see it. I think it's it on Netflix. It was really interesting. Yeah. And uh, Angela Bassett's in that, and she was in uh, Music of the Heart with Meryl. So. Oh. Those were the two that well I Well done. Yeah. So did we decide who we were going to do next? You came up with somebody, didn't you? Oh, Justin Timberlake. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That'll be yeah. interesting. A, it will be interesting. You know, he's he's been in a handful of reputable movies, and my guess is we can make a connection. I don't know if we can do it in in two in like one person. Right. Well, I can think of I I can think of one if we're including Cedar, which is a real stretch. But he was in um, a movie with Natalie Portman. I think. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of Ashton Kutcher. Was you he are. a romantic comedy? Okay, <laughs> then never mind. Yeah, Just, Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman and then Justin Timberlake and Myla Kunis both made, right. it was Friends with Benefits and I don't remember what the other one was called, but they're like okay. the, an identical movie. Okay. Came That's out at the same time. Yeah. yeah. I haven't yeah, seen either one. This all the time. Yes. I haven't seen um, either one. That's okay. <laughs> you, don't, is, you don't need to see. Which is funny if you think about it, because then Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis are in Black Swan together. So there's yeah. connections all over the place there. Okay, well, yeah, yeah we'll figure yeah. out Justin Timberlake. I'll have to really think about that, because he's been in some, but not a ton of stuff. So we'll figure it out, and we'll get right. to that next time. Do you want to tell them what we're doing next, Meryl? Sure, sure. We are actually going to uh, do the hours. Spontaneous the hours. decision. I like it. Yes. We had, we had been talking about another thing, but I'm excited about the hours because, well, we talked about that. I think it's in my top five. I, I like the hours a lot, and I feel like it kind of is one of those movies that people loved when it came out like some people loved, and then it kind of became like, oh, that really sad movie. <laughs> and um, <laughs> like nobody thinks of it as anything other than that really sad movie. And I think it's a really good movie with a lot of really great actors and really great performances. So... Yeah, I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Me too. So, well, good to talk to you today, Meryl. I think this is another episode. Well, thanks so much, and we'll see everybody again next time. Bye. Yep, bye, everybody. You look like an angel. angel. Walk Walk like an angel. Talk like an angel. But I got wise You're the devil in disguise Oh yes you are Devil in disguise